The Guardian. Over the last couple of months, we've all had to come to terms with new ways of life, whether that's working from home or extended periods of time away from loved ones. But we've also had to come to terms with, well, new terms, like the R number. So when you have a large epidemic with thousands of cases, it gives you a very useful summary value of what's going on um, with your outbreak. Scientists talk about it, politicians talk about it, and now so do we. But as parts of the world begin to slowly ease lockdown, with R as their guiding light, we thought it would be good to have a look at why this term is a lot more complicated than you've previously been led to believe. It really reflects the classic statistical problem that as you get smaller uh, amounts of data, um, the uncertainty becomes greater and you need to be slightly more careful in your, in your measurements. I'm Nicola Davis and this is Science Weekly. Perhaps we can just start by making clear the difference between this R number and something called R naught. Can you just make sure that we get that straight to start with? Yes. Um, so in epidemiology, we use these values as a measure of uh, the amount of transmission. Um, this is Dr. Adam Kacharski, an associate professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So R naught, it can be thought of as the kind of baseline level of transmission in the early stages of an outbreak. So when you don't have control measures in place, you initially have these outbreaks taking off. Um, that's typically what Arnold refers to. And for, for COVID, there's evidence it's probably in the, the two to three range. So each uh, infectious person on average is spreading to two or three others in the early stage of the outbreak. But of course, as countries put control measures in, that may change the opportunities for transmission, change people's interactions and actually reduce that average transmission per case. So often we talk about um, the reproduction number, or generally we'll call it R, uh, to refer to the current level of transmission, accounting for any changes that might have, uh, have occurred since the early stages of the outbreak. And so when we're talking about R itself, so not R naught, but R, uh, lots of things go into how that's calculated. Can you talk me through some of the factors that affect R? Yeah, there's four main factors that, that drive the, the value of R that we would, um, we would see at a given point in time. Um, and I like to refer to those as the dots, D-O-T-S. D is the duration of infection. So if you imagine it from the point of view of someone who's infectious, the longer they have that infection, the longer they're shedding virus, the more they can contribute to transmission. But it also depends on what they do while they're infectious. That's the O, the opportunities. That obviously, if someone has a lot of interactions per day um, while they're shedding virus, that creates a lot more opportunities for this transmission to happen. But it also depends on what happens during those interactions. So that's the T, this kind of transmission probability uh, when someone comes in contact. So you might imagine that um, you have a healthcare worker who interacts with quite a lot of people, but they're wearing PPE. So actually, the, the risk of transmission per contact might be lower than it would be if someone was, say, in a bar. And then the final factor depends on whether the person who's having that inter interaction with the infected case uh, is susceptible. So the S in dots is susceptibility. And if the average level of susceptibility in a population is lower, then that's going to reduce the reproduction number. In turn, if we reduce one of those things or if one of those things increases, whether it's interactions or, or susceptibility, then um, that will have a direct effect on the amount of transmission we see. So that sounds like, and we've seen this in recent weeks, uh, that the R number for a particular virus, so in this case for the coronavirus, changes over time. This isn't a static number. 
Exactly. It will vary over time. I think the most notable change, obviously, um, in recent months is is those opportunities for transmission. Just interactions within the population have massively changed. The average social contacts people have per day in lockdown dropped by about 70-80%. And obviously that had a knock-on effect on the reproduction number. One of our listeners, Lindsay in Halifax, wanted to know how R is calculated. So we've talked about some of the factors that go into R and that can influence R. But when it comes to coming out with the kind of numbers that we hear about, you know, in news briefings and so on, can you give us a feel for what data goes into that? How is that, you know, how the nuts and bolts actually calculated? Yeah, there's there's two main ways. One is to use quite a top level approach. And if you think about the definition, which is on average, each infectious person spreads it to our number of, of, of additional people then if you know the delay from one generation infection to the next, so in other words, if you get ill on a given day, the person you infect, when do they get ill? That gives you the kind of timescale of the outbreak. And the ratio of change in the number of cases over that given period of time, which is about five days, will give you a measure of the reproduction number. So you know, if you have 10 cases today, it takes about five days for that generation of infection, and you have 20 cases in five days' time, you'd estimate that the R would be about two. So that's one way of doing it. The other is to use this DOTS approach to look at actually the basics of what drives transmission and go out and measure people's social interactions and look at how those social contacts are changing um, and estimate what that means to the reproduction number. So both of these approaches have been used in the UK. The first kind of top level um, measure groups are doing using things like case data, hospitalizations, deaths. Obviously, each of those data sources has its own limitations. But if you look at how much it's increasing or decreasing over time, that can give you an estimate of the reproduction number. And then likewise, with this kind of more um, nuts and bolts approach, uh, there's also been a series of social behavior studies going on in the UK. And from that, people have been estimating if there's been a, a given decline in social contacts, what that means for the reproduction number. And, and actually, that was one of the first estimates post-lockdown to suggest that the R had got below one as a result of lockdown measures, because obviously it takes time for those signals to show up in things like case data and hospitalizations. Yes, one of the things I wanted to pick up on there is that from what you've been saying, the way it's calculated is all sort of using retrospective data. It's not projected, it's it's calculated sort of backwards because there's a time delay uh, in the data that you're using. So does that mean that we can't really calculate R in real time. It, it does make it really difficult. And that, that time delay is, is a key issue, particularly there's this, um, this feature of a lot of the, the coronavirus data that the, the case data you get in real time is often less reliable than the data on, say, hospitalizations or, or deaths. And that's because obviously cases are very dependent on testing and what's being reported. But of course, the, the longer you wait, so if you're looking at hospitalizations or deaths, those are reflecting infections that probably occurred maybe three, if not four weeks earlier. So actually, if you get a change in, say, the hospitalization data, that's not telling you about infections and transmission now. That's telling you about transmission that was probably about three weeks ago. And one of the things there which seems to stand out is that because of this delay, it takes time for measures that have been implemented or, or relaxed to show up in, in the R value. What does that mean in terms of easing lockdown? I mean, we've had several different changes announced in fairly fast succession. Should we be worried about that? I think we, we do have to be cautious as, as measures are lifted to 
be able to evaluate what effect they're having. And then in turn, yeah, as countries get further in that outbreak, if, if measures need to be reintroduced, you, you want good information and good timely triggers of doing that. We've seen Germany have locked down some districts and you don't really want to be in a situation where the first signals that you've got a problem are, as we're seeing in some areas of the US, hospitals filling up and deaths rising. Um, you really want to be getting those signals much earlier about whether something's worked or not. So I think it, it is certainly a challenge because a lot of countries are working out how to, to tune their response, um, that they are lifting measures. But as you say, if things um, are done too quickly and you do see a rise, then it may well take a bit of time to actually identify that and, and refine what's being done. Would it also make it harder to work out exactly which measure was helping to reduce R in the first place? It makes it enormously difficult to work out exactly what had uh, what effect, especially because um, back in March, almost all countries in Europe put a lot of measures in over the space of about a week or so. So in the UK, although we had the, the formal lockdown on the Monday over that weekend, schools closed, pubs closed, restaurants, um, gyms, a lot of uh, transition to work, working from home happened. So actually trying to to pin down which of those had exactly which effect is is a really difficult problem. And I think really we're only going to get clear evidence as countries start to lift measures because in many places they're being done to some extent in a staggered sequence rather than all at once. Something I want to talk about is that uh, as we've gone through the peak of the coronavirus outbreak in the UK and sort of out to the other side, things seem to be getting more complex when we talk about R. So during the height of the outbreak, we were told, you know, R has to come below one for the outbreak to be declining so that each person is passing it on to fewer than one other person. But I want to know what the situation around R is now. Uh, in some cases, R seems to have been creeping up, but infections still seem to be falling. So what's going on? And, and is this more complex than we thought? Yes, it's. Uh, I think it's just the. It really reflects the classic statistical problem that as you get smaller uh, amounts of data, um, the uncertainty becomes greater, and you need to be slightly more careful in your in your measurements. So R is a really an average value. It tells you for an average case, on average, how many people they're giving it to. So when you have a large epidemic um, with thousands of cases, it gives you a very useful summary value of what's going on um, with your outbreak. But especially as you get to smaller numbers. And really localised transmission or transmission in specific settings. In the UK, there's, there's a lot of transmission in places like care homes and hospitals. It's not just a question of, on average at the national level, how much transmission is going on, but much more about, well, where is it happening and how is it happening? And that's what we're seeing countries that um, are now kind of reintroducing measures in places like Korea and Germany. They're very much focusing the measures on the areas or the specific environments where transmission is happening. So although ours is kind of useful average summary value, once you get to lower case numbers, if you want to stamp out these remaining clusters of infection, you've got to be asking much more about where is transmission happening. Um, and in particular, if you get new cases appearing, um, for example, it's happening in Australia, asking questions like, are these cases which we can link to existing outbreaks? Or are they cases that somehow have popped up and we don't really know how they fit in, which is obviously more concerning. Something listener and professor John Porter from the University of Copenhagen wrote to us about uh, was to express concern about relying too much on a single statistic. What do you make of that? I think we all 
always have to be cautious about putting too much on on a single value because of course outbreaks have many dimensions to them so i think it's very use, useful to have summary values that capture aspects of the outbreak that we're interested in but of course the impact of a reproduction number will also very much depend on how many infections you have so suppose you have a reproduction number of one which gives you just a flat epidemic over time if you're starting from a point of 10,000 infections a day a reproduction number of one means something very different to if you're starting from a position with, say, 10 infections per day in terms of the impact that you'd see into the future. So I think R is a useful summary value to tell you about transmission, but it also really is worth considering how much infection you have and where that infection is happening, um, as well as those simple average summary values. That's lovely. Thank you so much for joining us, Adam. Thank you. Thanks again to Adam for joining us. As usual, if you have any questions about COVID-19 you'd like us to explore, head over to theguardian.com forward slash COVID-19 questions, that's all one word, and let us know. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.